I don't want to like look like such an asshole. You'll edit me to look like somewhat less of an asshole. That's that's yeah. my job. <laughs> <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. And tablet editor at large, Leah Leibowitz. Enjoying a crisp Negroni. <laughs> From your saloon, also known as your office in your apartment also known as the homeschool <laughs> and the library and the peloton studio it's a lot of things how are, are you keeping up with peloton by the way leo i've taken so many scenic rides what's it like out there <laughs> you've gone through the alps you've gone through tuscany this week one jew of the week and what a jew he is matthew weiner creator of stephanie's covid companion mad men as well as the romanoffs on amazon prime we're so excited to be talking with him in just a few minutes but first off uh, can, can I go first? Can I tell you something really funny? Sure. Last night, I'm lying in bed with Anna, six-year-old Anna, and we, we read together like next to each other. We co-read. She doesn't want me to read to her anymore because she's a big girl. She reads her Babysitter's Club books. Classic. And and she's lying next to me, and we're in her the bottom bed of the bunk bed, and so it's like nice and cozy, and we're under all her blankies. And I'm reading The Counterlife by Philip Roth, which was <laughs> sent to sent to me by our friend Eric Ackland at Amazing Books and Records in Pittsburgh as part of my my special package since he's my book butler. And I'm reading The Counterlife and Anna looks over at me, looks up from Babysitter's Club number 74 and says, Daddy, why do they have to live on the counter? That's, Can she, I just say, she, if The Counterlife was actually about a family of Jews living on the counter, it would have been an immeasurably better book. Well, that's the counter life to the counter life, Correct. which itself is the story of, yeah, what happens if everything... I just thought that was so funny. Like to her, the, you know, the counter life could only be about a family of people living on a countertop. And I had, I had no answer. I was like, I, you know, you'll have to read the book someday to find out. But Leo, I have to say, you hate Philip Roth's work. With with the past. Have you read The Counter Life? I have. I, I found it maudlin and stupid like everything else he tried to write. You really hate The Counter Life? I mean, Anna basically had the same review. She's like, it's no Babysitter's Club. She's like, right, I'm reading the Babysitter's Club. What is this garbage? Operation Shylock is the one book I'll make an exception for, and it's a very slim exception. Wow. I think I've never read The Counterlife, and I said to Eric Ackland, send me some like middle period Roth, and The Counterlife for Roth, it's a really good book. Anyway. So I just subscribed to Eric's thing, and literally the only comment I wrote, like I wrote a bunch of things, but like in bold letters, like despite, like I think I wrote, I loathe Philip Roth. Right, because he gives you the diagnostic test. Like, what do you like? What Correct. don't you like? Right. <laughs> You're only, you'll read anything. He reads your aura <laughs> and then you read the aura. <laughs> That's what's up at my house. Stephanie, what's going on with you? I mean, I don't know if you guys can tell that I'm in a new space. Um, no, I haven't like fled for the beautiful countryside. I am in a closet. I thought you meant you were in a new psychological space. Like you're. I mean, that too, probably. I see. Uh, but I'm, I'm literally in a closet. I have created a makeshift recording studio with a lot of help from Josh, from producer Josh Cross. I'm inside a closet. Uh, I feel like an NPR reporter who's like posting a picture <laughs> on Instagram of like how real they are. I have to say it's very strange. It's pretty roomy in here. Like I had, this was like a front closet, which is, I know a, lo- a big luxury. I mean, I'm on a chair. There's a nightstand in here. There's a mic stand. You're like, I'm in a room with a door. <laughs> it's amazing. I'm going to rent this out after this all ends for like $1,500 a month. <laughs> this has implications for your marriage. I mean, in the future, rather than just seething or storming out of the apartment, you're just going to go to your closet. I mean, the door doesn't close, so you, it's not really that productive. But, you know, it's funny. I was like, Ben, you know, are you sure it's okay? It's like, you're going to hear everything I say. And he was like, do you think I don't already hear everything you say? I was like, even when I'm in the bedroom? He's like, yeah, I hear every single word you say on that podcast. Liel, can you top that? 
You don't have a closet. I don't have a closet, but what I do have is Weston Avenue, which by the wisdom of our infinite, omnipresent, omniscient mayor, Bill de Blasio, is now closed to traffic because what the hey, it's not like we have a life anyway. So you step out and Weston Avenue is just completely like overtaken by kids riding bikes and families walking, which is exactly the kind of atmosphere that you get in Israel for Yom Kippur, which is the day none of the cars drive and you just walk out of the street and all the kids are out and about. And the other day I had this moment, I was walking the dog and I stepped out of the building and I saw every, just like a bunch of people with children running around the streets. And I was like, is it Yom Kippur? Like, I kind of lost track of time. Is it, is it Tishrei already? Is it October? Where am I? It was like this like sliver of a second in which everything went dark. Well, I wanted to make fun of you for saying Weston Avenue instead of West End Avenue. West End Avenue. It's like, I'm <laughs> it's, like, where's, where's Weston Avenue? I want to go there. This is, this is how the locals call it. <laughs> you have to be from around here. You know, Weston Avenue. Do you think that's one of those things, you know, how every few weeks Leo will say something that's not white American and he outs himself it's so nice. as, as a foreigner, it. as an immigrant. Stephanie is obsessed with it. She loves accent shaming me. And I kind of love it when she does it. Because you you never would know that he was not born here. Right. But then sometimes he'll uh, be like, Muzzle, West like End he'll Avenue. say something and you're like, what? what? We, we have to keep better track of them. Maybe our listeners, call us at 914-570-4869 if you hear Liel Liel-isms. say something Dial himself. 1-800-IMMIGRANT. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because when I hear it, it surprises me because I'm not thinking of you as someone who has right. an, any sort of accented English. So when it when you do have it, it's so funny. I can't think of any examples. I had a friend in college who was herself born in, I think, Ridgefield, Connecticut, was American. Her parents had immigrated from South Asia. And she had this thing she said, and she couldn't hear why it sounded odd. She said orange juice instead of orange juice. She had she had just orange juice. There orange juice. One, one softy, orange juice. And it was the, it. the thing that she got from her parents and she carried into her own life. And it was it was fabulous. It's like it, w- it made her unusual and, and unique. And uh, I wish I had something like that. It's like how I say Florida. It makes me u- unusual and unique. Immigrants, we get the job done. Get the job done. It's uh, actually pronounced Job. <laughs> you know what else <laughs> gets the job done is our Facebook group. And I just want to mention, for, for those of you who are not in the Unorthodox Facebook group, which I rejoined Facebook just <laughs> to take part in. I have no Facebook friends. All I do is lurk in our Facebook group. If I may, I think you rejoined Facebook just so your name could be Jewcaster. So far, no one has found me and asked to be my friend. Nobody wants to be friends with Mark Jewcaster. But bless the Facebook group. After we revived the topic with some listener mail in the mailbox a few weeks ago about top sheets versus uh, no top sheet, just pure blanket or comforter, duvet, whatever. It moved back into the Facebook group. And then the wonderful Hunter Thomas merged two of the great topics of our podcast, conversion and top sheets, by writing, I've always hated top sheets. And as a soon-to-be Jew by choice, this affirms my commitment to becoming part of the tribe. Like, now he's found his people, the, the people who don't use top sheets, another reason that he should be a Jew. I, of course, maintain that not having a top sheet is barbaric and nothing that any people I'm part of would a hundred percent. So I maintain that this has nothing to do with being Jewish. And this is just this thing we've decided <laughs> like has to do with being Jewish. And someone else in the group was like, you know, I'm converting. I didn't know this. Is this something I'm supposed to know? And we've like inadvertently made this canon where it's not. I do want to say that Hunter Thomas has been crushing it lately because he also put something in our Facebook group that he made homemade babka. So I think my conversion is complete. So he says, somebody call a rabbi. And so I was like, mazel. Mostly on the babka, because that's really hard. There was also someone in our Facebook group who said, I'm from Arkansas. I've never made matzah before. How'd I do? And I picture a beautiful shmora matzah. 
Hey, guys, you are really. I don't. How did you do? Better than any other Jew in America right now. <laughs> like, that looks delicious. Is how you did, Stephanie. I do love the idea though that we're creating a fake canon of stuff that people need for their conversion. Like you go before the Beit did the three rabbis to convert, and instead of just being asked about like Torah and about the laws of keeping kosher and Shabbos and a Jewish They're like home. so Ziplocs. <laughs> say, say more about that. Aluminum foil or Saran wrap. Mark, wouldn't wouldn't conversion slash Jewish denominational life be a hundred times more sound if these were the question. Like, do you believe in top heat? Yes, you are a conservative Jew. Yay no, welcome to Reform Judaism. Like, wouldn't it be like much easier if like that was the test? I'm we, Tupperware-ish. Right. We absolutely have to create that quiz just made up of stuff that has nothing to do with actual Judaism, right. but that assigns us. Assigns ba- then we could do like a Broadway musical about it. Um, oh, wait, no, they already did that. The book oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tinfoil, so, you are a breast lover. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Sorry. The idea that like Hasidic courts divide up based on how they store their leftovers. <laughs> but enough about us. JK, never. Never. I also want to say, Mark, I tried to friend you while we were just doing this. You have like friend requests off. Oh, well. I <laughs> told right. me to send you a message. I'm like, I'm not sending him a message. I'm talking to him right now. Oh, it's great. That might be why I have no, why Mark Jewcaster has no friends. <laughs> but if I want friends, you know what I can do? News of the Jews, N-O-T-J, News of the Jews. In News of the Jews this week, we learn that we can just go to Germany, where the Central Council of Jews in Germany has launched their Meet a Jew project. According to the Blessed Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the Central Council realized, quote, a lot of people in Germany don't know Jewish people in person, and so they decided to recruit some Jews to go into schools and other communal spaces and sit on the hot seat and say, hey, I'm a Jew. This is what we look like. By the way, this is, is our just... version of the Book of Mormon. We send people there and they talk about tinfoil, top sheets, rugula versus babka. Like we completely steer <laughs> them wrong. Instead of sending the Jew to the school, I think it would have been easier if all the Jew were concentrated in one place. <laughs> so that everyone could go and visit the Jew in like maybe a camp. <laughs> This is so fabulous. Lena Roysenwasser, age 30, is a doctor in gynecology and obstetrics based in Berlin. She joined an earlier version of the project called Rent-A-Jew while studying in Mainz. <laughs> Quote, I just think it's important that we talk to each other and that they're not just talking about us as victims in history books, like we're just a chapter in German history. I think it's important that we show that we belong in the country now. We're part of society. Right, because <laughs> when they meet you through an exhibition called Rent-A-Jew... You are a very integral part of that nation's culture. First of all, you upcharge them for sure. Correct. (laughs) You upcharge them, show up late, and then talk really loudly at them and interrupt Mm -hmm. them. And then then they know you're a real person. And and then a second Jew walks into the room and say, this is nothing like what my (laughs) Judaism is like. But, you know, the crazy thing when I saw this, I was like, didn't this happen before? And what it reminds me of is in 2013, the Berlin Jewish Museum had this whole thing, the Jew in the box. This was this exhibit where real Jews would sit in an actual box. And one of our columnists did it. The great Jamie Kerchik. And you like are enclosed in glass. It actually kind of would be nice now. I would like to do that. And people like ask you questions. It's a Jew in a box. Which So it's funny because you're like, this isn't even the first time they've done this. Germany, trying to figure out Jews since 1933? Yeah, still not sure. But what happened between... <laughs> By the way, I just have the Meet the Meet the Met song, but like, meet the Jews. Jews. Meet the Jews. And here is Mrs. Jew. 
Liel, as our official hip-hop correspondent, I believe you have some news of the juice for us. So, Mark, I know that you are a very big fan of the rapper Takashi 69 which is why you've gotten cornrows and a bunch of face tattoos. Oh. I know your fandom is very I real. mean, I call him Takashi 69, but yes, <laughs> we're close. <laughs> right. And so Takashi, Mr. 69, was in prison for, let's just say, gang-related activities, and then... COVID-19 started, and he argued that he should be released into house arrest, which, you know, sounded like a reasonable request. So the judge lets him out, and he posts a video to social media in which he's walking around while one of his buddies is literally coloring his cornrows in all the colors of the rainbow, and he's dancing around, and it's like a very kind of goofy, cheerful video, except that whatever house it is that he was renting, in the background, had the most amazing Seform library of Jewish religious books. So he's dancing around Takashi 69, and you see like the Talmud, the Mishnah, Brura, all the letters of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, <laughs> like this incredible <laughs> leather bound, beautiful tomes of Jewish wisdom and lore. And you know what? It's just, it's just the greatest thing ever. Well, this was an extension of the German program. He did rent a Jewish house. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing long term rentals right now. Great deals. <laughs> A few years I just back. want to see how, how his music would be influenced by, by his new nighttime reading. He's like he's gonna change his name to Takashi 613, I think. Right. He's open up a whole new fan base. And Liel from the Hamptons to Hefron, bring us up to date on the elections in the Middle East. From the promised land to the other promised land. So right. as as fans of this show and people who might have read a newspaper in the last year and a half uh may remember, Israel's been having some electile dysfunction issues over the last year and a half. <laughs> Uh, they have tried to elect a government three different different times, uh, and eventually they came to a conclusion that it's just not going to work, which is why Bibi Netanyahu, the once and current and always prime minister for life, uh, signed a unity government deal, which is a really, I think, a totally uniquely Israeli invention <laughs> with his main competitor, Benny Gantz. To make this government possible, they appointed 36 ministers and 16 deputy ministers, meaning that the cabinet now contains 52 people out of a 120-person parliament, meaning nearly half of all members of parliament are now ministers or deputy ministers. <laughs> Is the this funniest, like the, the like government equivalent of the participation award? Basically, it's like, you get a portfolio, you get a portfolio. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it does have some bright sides, uh, like the first ever Ethiopian minister, who's this very brilliant and accomplished woman, and the first ever Haredi woman minister, which we've never had before. But Israelis being Israelis, uh, they are passing the time printing these amazing fake certificates, appointing themselves as ministers of different things. There's a URL called ministerof.com, and you can enter your name and like whatever you want to be a minister of. And so uh, I have made certificates for both of you. Stephanie, congratulations for being the Minister for Feline Affairs. <laughs> OMG, thank you so much. Are these the stray felines that in Jerusalem do I have to deal with? That's actually a big job. <laughs> That's basically the Jared Kushner portfolio at this point. Yeah, the Meowschwitz is now, is now your responsibility. And Mark, you're the official Minister for Connecticut-Israel Relations. <laughs> Joe Lieberman's going to be mad. I snatched that right, right his teeth. I'm sorry you take precedence. Uh, now, this comes with a house and uh, a chauffeur and a, a villa. Unlimited budget. <laughs> a, a lifetime supply it's of It's actually hummus. that same Takashi 69 house. 
it's actually like a collab house where all the ministers get together and make TikTok videos. <laughs> Correct. Basically, basically the Knesset, Knesset works, the right? Knesset is basically like a WeWork now. It's all shared space. <laughs> they don't have their own offices anymore. There's like I'm surprised beer Adam and coffee. Newman didn't get himself a ministry. Oh, he has to be the next, the next prime minister. Now, something that almost nobody will care about, but I care a lot about, is that the and why conser- else start a podcast? Really, right, right exactly. <laughs> The conservative movement, which somehow I find myself in, having grown up with no movement, I'm now like a serious conservative Jew, has decided, has, has issued a responsum to allow live streaming on Shabbat so that people can get together and, first of all, that they can live stream, which you shouldn't do according to halakha because it takes electricity. And then also, I believe they're going to count people who have logged on into a minion so that people can say the mourner's Kaddish and so that Torah can be read and all this stuff. And I get it. I understand. As somebody who belongs to a shul that I love and love going to, I understand that a lot of people miss the human contact and they feel like Zoom is the next best thing. And also there are people who've lost a loved one who want to be able to say Kaddish and they want rabbinic authority to say that it counts. At the same time, I really hate this ruling. Because I feel like, sure, conservative Jews mostly are not Shomer Shabbos. Mostly, uh, most of us, including me, they drive, they'll check their phone, etc. But I don't think it's hypocrisy that our shuls, that our synagogues are Shomer Shabbos spaces. That most of them, including mine, like don't allow musical instruments and don't allow like TV screens that show the the words up on them, like in a megachurch. I think it's actually saying there is some space that we can enter on that day where we can forget about technology and just live more simply. And I think it's it's an it's aspirational, I think it's an ideal, but it it means an awful lot to me. And I'm really really disappointed that the movement has decided to chuck that principle rather than endure one or four or however many more months of not seeing each other. You know, it's interesting to hear you say that Mark because you just wrote this whole piece last week for Tablet that's basically just about how Religion and solitude don't really, really mix and, and mm-hmm. how um, religion is, as you say, a highly social affair. So you're saying you miss your fellow congregants, you miss your rabbi, you miss your community, but you don't want it online. That's right. I wrote a piece saying, look, the people who say my religion is a walk in the woods, uh, that's a beautiful thing, but it's actually not religion. I think religion is inherently social. Uh, and I can say more about that. But um, even so, right, I feel like we're actually somehow the universe has called us to be without it for a while. And um, maybe that means that we're humming prayers to ourselves. Maybe it means we're studying texts. Maybe it means we're feeling, like in my own case, I'm feeling the loss of it. I'm, I'm not replacing it with anything great. I'm just feeling the loss and I think I'll be hungrier for it when it returns. But I, I, don't, I don't want the conservative movement to go computerization on Shabbat. I totally disagree with you, Mark. This may come as a surprise, but I think this is, this is like this make or break moment for American Judaism. And the people want connection right now. Like you you have people who actually want to log on to a service who might never go to a Shabbat service. And so I think that by cutting them out, you are just missing all these people. Liel, what do you think? Mark, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, I do think that you can, uh, in, in some version, do some religion by yourself. I mean, the last couple of months have been very difficult for me, but also very meaningful, davening by myself and, and having to work doubly hard to sort of practice on the kavana, on the intentionality of my prayer. But I do feel the same way about this new decree. It really seems to me like a major loss, even though I totally understand the impetus. Here's what I think will be an interesting idea. I belong to Romamu, which is a community in the Upper West Side, which is in the renewal movement. But uh, every now and then I go to an incredible synagogue called Anshei Chesed, 
which is led by a very thoughtful rabbi named Jeremy Kalmanowski, who's one of the people on the conservative movements. I don't know what they're called, the 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 papal. It's the College of Cardinals. The, the College of, <laughs> of Jewish Cardinals. And he's actually one of the people who passed this resolution and wrote a very thoughtful post to his congregants at Andre Chesed. And I thought it'd be interesting to to get him on the phone, not to put him in a hot seat or make him defend himself, but have a brief conversation. So Rabbi Kalmanowski, welcome to the show. Leah Leibovitz, thank you very much for having me. So, you know, I was deeply touched as someone, uh, we just had a little introduction here, as someone who deeply regrets and, and fundamentally disagrees with this decision. I was yet very touched by the email that you sent to your congregants explaining the difficulty of this decision and the thought behind it. So give us an insight into what this discussion was about. What are some of the difficulties that you personally felt and how do you think you guys came out? My personal feeling is one of sorrow for the emergency circumstance that we find ourselves in. I don't really want to do this. This is not my first choice. Um, I think that Jewish community is face-to-face community, and I think that we are all in all diminished by filtering it through all kinds of electronic media. And uh, I I do think that part of the preciousness of the modern Shabbat is its screen-free quality. That said, it became quite clear to me that this is what I would consider in, in a true and literal and not a metaphorical sense, Tzorchet Sibor, truly the needs of the public. And I think different communities come to synagogue life with different needs. And some of them certainly are about the, the details of Jewish observance. And, and many of them are about being able to be together and worship together and, and the emphasis on together. And what it became evidently clear to me is that with the prospects of, of this pandemic lasting, you know, God knows how long, and the realistic prospect that we, we absolutely don't know when we're ever going to see each other again, that became really untenable. And so we wanted to find a way to enable people who really want to be as, as electronics-free as possible, as screen-free as possible on Shabbat to log in before Shabbat begins and enable themselves to be part of the communal gathering as well. This is not my first choice. My first choice is Shabbat stillness and no electricity and uh, at least no electronics. But I also repeat that... This is, I think, an accommodation to a true emergency. If I were writing Josh Heller's paper, by the way, I would have foregrounded uh, stressing this is for one situation and one emergency circumstance, and it should not be taken to become the new normal, which I think would be a tremendous diminishment of Shabbat. What this makes me think of is just the fact that so many people I know who would never think of going to a Shabbat service are now like baking challah. You know, there are so many people right now who might not be affiliated in the traditional sense, might not have membership dues to a synagogue, might not feel like there's a place for them. They actually really want this right now. So I am kind of optimistic about this because you're reaching these people. You're reaching the people who would come to shul, who would be there every Saturday early. But I do think you're also going to get a lot of people you wouldn't normally get. And is that part of this at all? It's it's not particularly part of my calculation in my synagogue. Although, if those, if those things happen, uh, th- there could be worse, you know, collateral effect. Um, I spoke to a friend of mine who's a, who's a rabbi in Long Island who related that, you know, one of his members said to him, uh, not a particularly often shulgoer, that when they, they, she was watching it in her house, and when Shema Yisrael came by, her kids stopped and covered their eyes and said Shema Yisrael, and then went back out to the yard to continue playing. And if that happens a lot, then we will all say, hooray. And if more people who didn't think that they wanted this to be a part of their life, 
you have this experience and choose to, then we'll, then we'll say a modified hooray. My calculus was not about that. It was about the 600-odd members of our Kahal who want to be together and feel significant loss and loneliness at the moment and don't have the davening that they want. You know, I think that people who practice differently, I can't let it go on for two, four, six, eight, twelve months without communal prayer in our community. Our producer, Josh, he's the guy in America who's passionate <laughs> about Reform Judaism. He's not the only one. I had one. a question for you. Josh, you want to you wanna hop in? Well, first of all, before I ask you a question, I want to say welcome to the Reform Movement. <laughs> because as a Reform Jew who hears that you all are doing this, we have long felt like there were massive divisions between American Jewry in particular. And one of the things was is that ostensibly conservative Jews, while at home, they might have a BLT here and there. Their services were more orthodox, if you will, and they were more practicing. When in actuality, my, my conservative cousins were pretty much the same as me at home and, and whatnot. This really kind of breaks down the wall where we felt sort of denigrated a lot of the times by conservative Jews saying, oh, they're just reformed. Then I don't, they don't really do anything. Those are your secular Jews. You're now basically sort of breaking down that wall, which tells the lie to how it's been, and also sort of breaks down a wall so that we're all practicing similarly, which is a good thing in building community. Obviously, there's more in common between the various stripes of liberal Jews, reform or, or, or conservative, more, more in common among them than towards orthodoxy. And I think that's correct. I do think that sociologically speaking, self-described conservative Jews do have significantly different behavior patterns than self-described reform Jews. But admittedly, it's not night and day. Look, I, I think it's it's hard to deny that, and, and I think this is fundamentally sociological, it, and, and it relates at least partly to the number of generations since immigration. It, it, it's true that the behavior patterns of religious observance are growing more liberal. It doesn't particularly make me happy. But I can't do anything other, I really can't do anything other than be a traditional but heterodox Jew. That's me. I'm a traditional Jew who keeps the norms, but I'm not orthodox. And the inviolability of certain of the norms, I think, is, shall we say, overstated in contemporary orthodoxy. My question is logistics. Like, do you set up the camera? Is it like, are you hitting start before Shabbat? Is someone stopping it? Is it kind of like a live stream for the full Shabbat? Like, what can we see if we log in at the wrong time? First of all, there are two basic sorts of technologies. One is interactive, like the one we're on right now. Uh, with multiple participants, and one is basically unidirectional, and that's basically streaming. Streaming sends out a signal and other people watch it. A Zoom platform like this one allows people to participate. It is my understanding that that either can be activated before Shabbat, either because you set the timer to activate it, or just the, the Zoom conversation begins before Shabbat, and people can log in. And if they disable, for example, the screensaver or the sleep function, then the conversation will still be there eight, eight hours later or 10 hours later when, when the morning starts. It's like a sleepover at shul. If the spirit of it is no technology, saying, well, starting the streaming beforehand is like, well, let's just build an air roof, right? I mean, it's the spirit of it was not to have to be engaged with technology. So I don't, I mean, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing whether you fire it up Saturday morning or Friday afternoon, right? I, I do not think that that's correct. I mean, listen, the example that you gave is demonstrative. Judaism is not a kind of enforced, even 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 halachic Judaism, even more traditionalist than my own, is not a sort of enforced Amish uh, anachronism, right? It does evolve to meet different circumstances and change conditions. And so I would say that the successful uh, attempt to obviate my need to turn on my computer, to, to strike the keys, to send signals over the wires and the wireless uh, on Shabbat, the, the, if I can avoid doing that, 
then I'm pleased with that. I want to say I'm I'm really moved by your discomfort about this. Like, this isn't something that you are doing lightly. You're doing this because you want to minister to, I mean, to use a Jewish phrase, you want to minister <laughs> to your flock. And I think that we've done, we've seen this throughout history, right? Like, you have to figure out how to, how to reach the people and it looks different. I don't know. I'm logging on. I'll be there. Well, I hope so. Okay, I'll be there too. <laughs> Robert Kamanowski, uh, we gave you a little bit of a hard time here today. You did not. I want to thank you on a very personal note and tell you that even though I still disagree, although understand, I am immensely grateful to know that we have leaders like you who think about these things very seriously, who make these very difficult decisions that are harrowing spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and that stand first and foremost for the interests and the well-being of the community. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. To the mailbox, we threw out there the juiciest question ever, which is what woman's name should a convert choose? We got a letter from a convert in Kerrigan who said, I need a Jewish woman's name. What should I go with? We each had our ideas. Beruria, Rivka, Mala, Hoga, Tirza, And we said, J.Crew, what would you choose? We got literally nothing. We get a thousand letters about aluminum foil or top sheets. And you're not going to help this convert? I have to think the letters are coming. I will say that Kerrigan was the one in response to Hunter's Facebook post. I'm just remembering this. Was like, wait, I didn't know about the top sheet thing. So we've not only not answered her question, we've confused her more. <laughs> So sorry about that, Kerrigan. Sorry. But we did get this great letter. Hi, Unorthodox. I appreciated your Hebrew name suggestions for the woman who is soon to be a Jew by choice. I'm soon to be a Jew by choice myself and haven't given much thought to a Hebrew name. So thanks for reminding me I need to do that. All three of you gave great suggestions, and I can't wait to hear more if it comes up again. But I especially love Mark's suggestion, and I think I'm going with Mala. Stay well, Elizabeth. Well, you're welcome. And we are excited. Tirza. Hogla, it was the, the sisters of Noah. Anyone but Noah, yeah. Well, I like it because you could be Mala or Malala. Ooh, add a little flavor to it. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869 or you can email us a voice memo. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our guest today is writer, producer, director, multi-multi-hyphenate, uh, Matthew Weiner. He created the TV series Mad Men and the Romanoffs and was a writer and executive producer on The Sopranos. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here. Hello. Great to have you. We're so excited to have you here with us. Normally, you know, to interview, we'd like fly on our Learjet to uh, L.A., come visit you. Where are you? Uh, what's going on? How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm in Silver Lake, uh, Los Angeles, and uh, California, basically. And my family's fine. Everybody's fine. It's just I'm very grateful that I that I'm okay and that I can weather this out. I'm like everyone else. I'm incredibly anxious, and I have never ever given over such a sense of control of my life in the future. Well, thank God, thank God we have TV. I, 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 yeah, people are watching a lot of TV. Where would we be without television at such a moment as this? Which sort yeah. of brings us to what we want to talk about, because I don't know sure. if you've heard this, but everyone is watching Mad Men right now. I have only anecdotal uh, experience. You know, I never know who, what, who's watching what. I have heard that recently. I've had people texting me and... It's weird, even when the show first went on the air, like I didn't know that anybody was watching it because the ratings are strange and there was it was really DVR'd a lot. And like, how many is a million people? You know what I mean? Or two million people or three million people. And um, I just remember overhearing a conversation about it at the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf in, 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 on Larchmont Boulevard. And I was like, I know this is anecdotal, but I have never, ever heard anyone. I was on The Sopranos and I never heard anyone talking about the show in front of me and didn't know who I was. So my data is bad. It's flawed. I have that, you know, uh, what is it? The predisposition, the gestalt psychology, whatever it is, the confirmation bias. But it sounds to me like a lot of people are watching it. Yes. One of those people is me. Right. A full one third of the hosts of this show, indeed, has been watching it religiously <laughs> these past two months. Excellent. Had you seen it before? So I had never seen it before. And I was aware that as it was happening, I had sort of like missed the boat. And I knew that there was a cultural conversation I was not part of. And I would yeah. get to the office to on the Monday <laughs> and everyone would be talking about what happened. And so when I started watching, I just felt like I finally understood what everyone had been talking about. But it's not exactly what people think it is. That's for totally, sure. I've heard yeah. people, you know, whatever, I don't watch TV or whatever they're going to say. And I was like, I, 
I can't even recommend it to people because it's so different, good or bad. You know, there's no murder and there's not a lot of guns and, and the problems are, they have bigger problems than, than you and I do. But really, there's almost every experience in the show regular people have. I just love receiving texts from Stephanie as she was watching. Things like, <laughs> this show is so Jewish. I was like, yes, it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, I, I, I do. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I watch the pilot and all of a sudden they're pitching this Jewish department store and Rachel Menken is this like beautiful, sultry Jewess, like in and the person who would probably say that word. And I was just like, no one yeah. told me this show is so completely Jewish. And so I guess that's sort of what... I really want to talk to you about because I don't know necessarily that if I didn't know it was such a Jewish show, did, did was everyone aware of this? Like were people really buzzing when this came on that? No, no, not at all. Look, you know, it's, it's an artistic context. It's like whenever you're in, in, in popular life, that is, that takes a back seat. And actually I would say that there, there were other Jews on the staff with me. And obviously I've been, was a comedy writer for years and I was rarely the only Jew in the room or anything like that. But you just don't put it front and center. And in fact, at a certain point, the, the writers on the show were like another Jew, another comment about it. To me, it was just a great model for outsiderness. And one thing I remember is that there was a kind of a, a rumor early on in the first season. It's hard for you to experience the same way because it came out weekly. And also the first season, no one even knew who was watching it. Also, like, what are weeks? Exactly. exactly. That was back when we had weeks, right? So quaint. <laughs> Well, there is a thing. There was a thing about like when the episode would end, people would ruminate about it for the week, you know, and you'd sort of wonder what was going to happen and it would unfold it a little bit slower. And now they're sort of all watched. You don't even know when the seasons end or anything like that. There are these huge time jumps. That was all part of playing with the audience's anticipation. All of that is gone for better or worse. I mean, I'm glad I'd rather people watch it. But all I was going to say is that there was a, a rumor uh, pretty early on in the first season that Don's big secret was that he was Jewish. And that kind of stunned me. I was like, I don't know how much evangelical Christianity I need to put in it. But, you know, there was a moment, there was a review, a, a, po a very positive review. I don't know if it's very positive. It, it's hard. Once you start reading reviews, they're never positive enough, which is insane. Um, but it was a review from Dorothy Rabinowitz at the uh, Wall Street Journal. And I, I don't know what her actual age is, but she, it, she... You know, later on, people started coming up to me and saying, I was there, that was right, or, oh my God, or, you know, this whole idea about white shoe advertising agencies and, you know, discrimination and their, you know, Jerry Della Femina, who's Italian, they, they had this philosophy about what happened in the creative revolution is that Jews and Italians came into advertising and they brought their sense of humor and they brought subversion and they brought a lot of sort of like subversion in the sense of like, don't buy this product or think small with the Volkswagen ad or... You know, there's there's a lot of J Jewish firms and all of that was sort of like part of my drive for making the show. But Dorothy didn't even comment on Rachel Macon. And as far as I knew, that's very strange. Yeah, she's a, she's a big Jew. Dorothy. Rabinowitz. She did not comment on it. And I don't know if she felt she had to. I mean, it was a very different time. I know it's hard to believe that things because people assume that. But there was no iPhone when the show came on the air. There was very little streaming. The technology was not up to it, but what Madison Avenue said was that the audience and Hollywood, that the audience didn't have the attention span to watch anything longer than three minutes, when really they didn't have the ability to stream it. And so the idea was that they were gearing everything for sell-through, which is where you would download it and you would own it. Nobody thought like we would ever have the bandwidth to like push things out live and then you they'd disappear. So Along with that model, 
there was, it was a moment of post-feminism. So I was out selling the show talking about gender, which is what we used to call that. And people were like, stop talking about that, the, 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 the politics, just sell the sex. The show is sexy. And I was like, this is an interesting issue, you know? So Dorothy didn't address anything. It's also the Wall Street Journal. Who knows? You know, everyone was so, was so wary. Even the advertising people were wary about what the show was going to do because they knew that, that it, you know, there's very few period shows that happen where most of the people are alive who are in the show. See, but that strikes me as a kind of, a kind of thing that I've always noticed about the show is that when it first aired, I feel that like people were very attached to the sort of, you know, nostalgia quotient. They're like, oh, look at the furniture, look at our lives, they're so cool, the martini lunches right. and everything. Not really getting that the show was basically <laughs> pulling that apart in like a million different ways and, and making all these like incredibly complex emotional and, and, and political arguments. Do you think that we're getting this better now that we're watching this from the distance of time and do streaming? Maybe. First of all, it's a very flattering characterization, but obviously that was my goal on some level. I mean, I still hear people say things like you can't convince people, you can't change their mind about it was a simpler time. To me, like, you know, Don and Betty got divorced. Everyone's like, but they should, they're so great together. Oh my God. Have you gotten to that part, Stephanie? Am I ruining it for you? I watched the finale last night and I'm like oh, in okay. an emotional like not the opposite okay. of a spiral. Like I've been on a journey. Well, I've fully <laughs> binged full season in like I would say three weeks. So I'm wow. like I'm I'm living this. Well, all I was gonna <laughs> say is that I remember saying to them, you know, Don and Betty have a terrible marriage, <laughs> and they'd be like, no, they look so good together. And I, I mean, mean, the show the show that... harmonizes with what you expect from TV. So for me, I remember getting this very, this, this French reporter, you, no one asks questions like French reporters, everything, or Italian ones for that matter. Everything is like the end of eight and a half. Everybody becomes Jean-Luc Godard. All of a sudden they're like, <laughs> when you think about the existence of man versus media, and you're just like, oh my God, I've been dying to <laughs> fuck up a question like this my whole life. And they were like, you know, Douglas Sirk, there's so much Douglas Sirk in the show. And I was like, you know, is this an homage to this Douglas Sirk? And I said, I don't know how to explain this to you. Betty Draper is not supposed to look like a Douglas Sirk movie. Betty Draper watches Douglas Sirk movies. Right. And that was always the thing to me that you would look back and you'd see that half of their 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 values and their sense Joan, I mean, you can't get more of it than Joan. Her whole sense of herself is from the movies. But real life doesn't live up to that. So harmonizing against the way a TV show works and David Chase invented this. David Chase just invented this. He he invented he really what? What, what, invented what are you this invented? idea of like it's a TV show, but nothing is going to happen like a TV show. There's murder and things like that in The Sopranos, but I just remember I was part of an episode where Tony it was my first episode actually, and Tony was being um, his his contractor um, uh, Robert Desiderio, who uh, Jack Mazarone is wearing a wire, and Tony's not sure or not. And we got to this point when we were breaking the story and, and, and David goes, so Tony will go down and he'll like pat him down and he'll figure it out. And I go, on TV, he'll figure it out. In real life, he's Tony. He's not going to tell. The guy had a, had a microphone. The FBI had told us that they'd just come out with this microphone that was small enough that it fit in the button of a baseball hat. And we were like, he's not wearing a pack. Tony's like patting him down and stuff like that. And Tony comes back and he's like, I don't know. I couldn't tell shit. And then we were like, in real life, He's not going to have to find justice 
to kill Jack Mazarone. He's just, the suspicion is enough if they're going to commit, you know, if he thinks he's going to get arrested. So he just, he's like, I don't know. I couldn't tell shit. And of course, you know, they kill him. Of course, I, David added the extra thing, which was that the reason that Tony is truly suspicious is because Jack has said to him that he looks like he's lost weight. <laughs> <laughs> which is just genius it really is and all the guys in the pork store just sort of look down after tony says that and everybody knows this guy is dead because <laughs> well, the no no i'm Tony's never gonna tell you that weight. again never tell me that again the funny thing is i also recently like a year ago started watching the sopranos and one yeah. of my first insights was like there's the get subplot with the, the jewish guy and the divorce yeah, sure. and i was like what where all these jews everywhere they're everywhere well Look, first of all, it's a big part of New York, um, and it always has been part of New York. And, you know, to me, telling the story, I guess the thing that I realized, I can say it now, is that assimilation is not self-hatred, but it is a big part of the plan for everyone in America, and the, uh, at least at that mid-century America. And the idea that, the idea that Don Draper was not white enough in birth, that even he was aspiring to be a wasp. And then when he gets into that room and Burt Cooper has to explain it to him, and you know that you start to find out the first season that he has this background of rural poverty. And Roger says, yeah, I noticed you drop your G's a lot. And John Hamm is from St. Louis. And, you know, he's such an exquisite, nuanced actor. He would do things when there were moments of true crisis. You'll hear his accent. If you watch the episode again, where there's the fire in Baltimore with Sal and he he, yeah. he yells to the to the stewardess, get your shoes like this. Right. You just start to hear that there is somebody who is hiding there, who has become, dare I say it, become white. And New York is just it's just made. It's made of that. And then you get someone like Pete, who's got, you know, liberal largesse. He's he's, a, you know, he's a, a Roosevelt Yankee. He's probably he's a bigot in every way, but he's also it's kind of a, a little bit of a meritocracy. And he's also betrayed his family and his breeding by going to advertising. That was a thing that I didn't realize either, that that line, I heard someone say that, that their father had said to him, that's not a job for a white man. Wow. Advertising. <laughs> it was basically like going and becoming a baseball player I mean, or like joining the circus. Or an actor, right? I <laughs> or mean, an actor, exactly. As, as Jewish as the show was in some ways— and I've been sold on this largely through hearing Stephanie talk about it. I mean, I watched it completely wrapped. I had no critical eye. I actually thought that everyone lived this way in great, wonderful mid-century, you know, Ames chairs and everything. I was, I'm not a very discerning viewer of these things, but I'm persuaded uh, uh, having had it pointed out to me how, how much Judaism there was in there. I do remember the Rachel Mankin subplot very well. I think Maggie Siff is just amazing in everything she's in. Um, but it also was a show that probably had more wasps in it or, or more more characters who were wasps than any show since. I mean, I actually have yeah. wondered, could you get a show made today that was basically about really moneyed Protestants? Um, I think people, I think you're going to see it now. Uh, I think you can, they can't get enough of it because they're the easiest villains in the world. We can't, we can, we're not going to make the Chinese into an American TV show as the villains. Who is it going to be? They, they, they can't use South Africa. They can't use the Russians. I bet there's, they're going to be there. You think it's all in production like, right now. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, they're they're a pretty easy target. And when we, you know, when people like me who present white tell you that we're Bart, that even I am somewhere on the intersectionality scale, it would be shocking, right? Um, and you are. And uh, but to me, it was about them losing their power. It was about this ideal of becoming that way, 
and about them losing their power. And also, I think that the Jewishness is... I mean, the writers in the room, like I said, were eventually like enough already. It's like, I don't, we don't need to keep hearing about how this, like when Jane Siegel, you know, Roger's second wife, you know, I knew she was Jewish and we didn't make much of it. And then he needed her and he he had to do it. But there were certain things that I had in the back of my mind, you know, uh, just about my parents. And a lot of the, the show was about my parents' generation and what I call the nose job generation, where they're just kind of, um, they want to fit in, but they they might keep kosher at home. It's all sort of going against a little bit of what I found to be um, self hatred um, that I was raised in, and and I I don't want to come out of nowhere and just like slam people, but like there was an attitude among Jews, uh, Jewish men in particular, but Jews in general, and it, it's we still have it sometimes. Um, and I was raised, by the way, in Hancock Park in Los Angeles. I went to a, I went to Sterling Cooper. That was my high school. And I heard people, <laughs> I was a teacher at an all-girls school one summer. And that's where I heard the line that's in the pilot about Jews, where a, a, one teacher said to the other, um, old money Los Angeles people, well, adding money and education doesn't take the rude edge out of people. And wow. so I was like, I knew what anti-Semitism was and, and it was passe in many respects, but I guess I just, there's an outsider quality to it. There's an aspirational quality to it. There is a prejudice quality to it. And for my parents, like pointing out that they're Jewish, I don't know that that's necessarily like being able to pass is like a very big thing for them. But at the same time, it's sort of important to them. And if you take the tradition of Woody Allen and Philip Roth, and, you know, I'd say Paul Mazursky and so forth. And not that there aren't parents like that, or women like that, or men like that. It just was this kind of venal, um, ugly, um, strangely anti-intellectual, you know, stereotype that I was like, you know, I don't, I don't see that. And I don't know that I want to I don't know that there's a there's a there's a different thing going on here. And Don is an outsider and he bonds with Rachel because she's an outsider. And some of that's just romance. But so what about when he reads Portnoy's complaint in like season six? I remember <laughs> I remember coming to work the next day after that. Aired and everyone was like, what does it mean? He read Philip Roth. We got to get a screen grab. Can we get a screen grab? Can we license a screen grab? <laughs> um, well, he reads everything. And that's important. He goes to see every movie. He reads everything. Don is sort of against the grain, uh, I'm always sort of kicking research. Um, I'm always saying, like, if you want to be a, an artist or a salesman, honestly, you know, that's what he's doing when the when the show opens. He's he's interviewing somebody in, in that bar. You need to keep your ear to the culture. And so when Dr. Faye comes in and tells him, like, this, this idea you have isn't going to work, um, Dr. Faye, another Jewish character, obviously, um, and more street. And Cara Bono actually is from the Bronx. And I was like, she spent her entire life. She's Italian-American, obviously. She was on The Sopranos. And um, I, she spent her entire life, like, getting rid of this Bronx accent. I was like, just bring it on. Because she sounds actually exactly. <laughs> my mother went to Bronx science. She sounds a lot like my mom. All right, so have you been uh, watching? Wait, I just want to say, have you been watching Mrs. America by any chance, Matthew? I have not. I only saw the first episode. I'm having trouble watching TV right now. I'm probably different than everybody else. One of my big gripes is that Margot Martindale, who's a great actor, just can't do Jewish. She's trying to do Bella Abzug. And she doesn't have 
she has no more than 50% of the accent or the attitude that she needs. It's like they can't, she can't out wasp it, get the wasp out of her. It's, it's really, <laughs> it's like they needed a, I don't know if they needed a Jewish actress. I mean, she's such a good actor and yet it just doesn't read as Jewish at all. Or just an Italian as to as traditional, you know, Nancy, you know, I don't know. Nancy Marchand is one of the few people that really like nailed something outside of her ethnic range. James Kahn. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, it's hard to believe he's Italian. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, an Al Pacino has played any number of Jews, obviously. Right. Um, but uh, no, it's funny. I did. I didn't notice that. But I also like when we had Rachel Minkin's father come in or we did Ginsburg's dad. And I was like, they need to speak with the intonation. It's embarrassing. And there's like a couple of other Jews there and they're like, oh, do we really have to well, do that? Well, what was that? so perfect was the guy she ends up marrying is clearly a like, you know, Yekish, German, Jewish, Lincoln somebody, right? The, the guy Tilden Katz. Yes. Tilden Katz, who was a guy I went to college with. Perfect. I heard that perfect. name when I was in college and I was like, are you kidding me? You know what? Honestly, <laughs> let's be, let's, let's, let's really say what it is. Is there anything more Jewish and more waspy than Salinger? That is the that is the that is the core of that moment in America of like the Glass family. They are right. You don't get more Jewish than the Glass family, yeah. but are they Jews? They're playing tennis. They're going skiing. There are a lot of things that people didn't do back then. All right. And, so now uh, I want to. Do, play would you agree French, with this? Yes, a thousand percent. And, and, and I want to complicate it a step further. Uh, I want to play. And also, French. as somebody grew up thinking that Salinger was the wasp writer, I was reading when it occurred to me in my twenties as I read the Glass stories that he was Jewish and that he was pulling all oh, yeah. that together. It blew my mind because I thought yeah. I'd just been reading Holden Caulfield. It, it blew my mind. I know, I know. It's weird, right? It's really weird. Sorry, Liel. Go ahead. So listen. Yeah, let's hear I, the French. Let's hear the French journalist. No, I question. want to take this to very dark places. I want to. I want to play oh, okay. one of those French reporters or Italian reporters uh, that okay. I like so much. Can I crawl under the table like I, an eight and a half? And ask about your oeuvre, because it seems to me okay. that this, this question of fluidity of identity is one that um, that sort of haunts you and about which you progressively get darker. See, if I had to suggest a show for everyone to watch right now, as much as I love Mad Men, it wouldn't be that. It would be the Romanovs, uh, where to me is a oh. sort of the return of the repressed, right? As these people trying to cling on to something yeah. and then and then coming up against a whole world scheme that is that is predicated to putting them back in their little place against it's which just, they sort of claw. I, 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 I would agree with you. I feel seen. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I don't write from a philosophical point of view. I'm not just being cagey. I really don't. I write from character. But I really, I pitched that show by saying, this is a show about a bunch of people who think they used to be great. And I pitched it before the election. <laughs> And I uh, <laughs> and I was like, this is, um, you know, I'm special and I have this royal blood. And like, why are we talking about the Kennedys still? Is it the money? Why the crown? The crown is a perfect example of and it's exquisite. There's no, I'm not not knocking the crown, but I literally am like, what is the issue with this woman? What was her contribution to anything other than learning how to not get in the way? And and to maintain their dominance of like a financial and symbolic empire. So I we all have this in us. We all want to be uh, Americans don't have this kind of lineage. So we want to be discovered. And the globalism, the anti-globalism that has locked this down was really what was going on in the Romanovs. I couldn't even make the show now just production wise. Obviously, we filmed all over the world. But the if you watch the show and you see people start to 
what what they get from their origins, even though they're not clean, even though they're not even sure if they really have it. You just start to see, you know, that they're they're not really connected. They're fighting for connection. They're fighting for origin. They're fighting for status based on that or an excuse for why things went wrong. They're victims. They're, you know, it's all in there. So, so um, I, I, ev- I feel like it is yes. right for right now. Yes. <laughs> now that all the demons are out, right? Now that That's the demons a, I have, can't sell that title. <laughs> the new show. Now that all the demons are out, uh, all, all the nationalism, all the xenophobia, all those so prominent out in the open, uh, as an artist who's obsessed with these questions, where are you emotionally? You said you don't work philosophically. What, what are you thinking um, about these days? That is a really nice question. Um, uh, I, I can actually answer that. I found, you know... You can't, I'm not an expert on the 60s, although I guess I am at this point, but I found my goal, and Stephanie, you just got there, was to basically show this massive turning inward at the end of the 60s that happened because the revolution failed. In 1968, um, there was a revolution all over the world, actually, and a violent revolution in many places. There was a revolution in Hong Kong, in Mexico City, there were the, there was Prague Spring, there was the um, the the riots in uh, in France, you know, the student riots, and there was the Chicago Democratic Convention. There were many more race riots going on in the United States. All of this happened, and it ended with the tanks rolling in, massacres everywhere, and Nixon being reelected. So it's sort of like Napoleon, if you might imagine, if it was the French Revolution. Ah, thank God we have our dictator back, and everybody, nobody wanted to go that far. And here's the order established. Well. And probably from Kent State on, actually, when, when, the, when the U.S. government actually start killed the children, you just find this turning inward. I think it's part of what the Age of Aquarius is about. I think it's this. So there is a, there is a spiritual vacuum that I believe, as an amateur Hegelian and, 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 and um, I don't know, amateur intellectual, that this is the classic reaction to the technological shitstorm we've just lived through uh probably as big as electric lights and automobiles coming through at the same time every time this has happened in history there's been a massive move against science against technology and then a rising of religion spirituality turning inward belief in the occult belief in the unseen because we know that this that something human has been taken away from us or we feel that way and which is funny because we have this virus in the midst of it, which is just reminding us of our humanity. So, so for me, when I saw that happen, and that's what Don's doing on that bluff at the end of, of the of Mad Men finale is like, you know, I don't know if I'm at Candide where I'm just going to tend to my own garden, you know. Um, another time, you know, if you read Candide, he's got the Lisbon earthquake. He's got the, the Spanish Inquisition. And Pangloss says, you know, tend your own garden. I can only deal with myself. And with this at the end of the 60s, and I think we still have this belief, is that if we all start to get some kind of consciousness, there could be a massive spontaneous change in the culture. And so creatively and personally, I've been in a place probably a couple of years behind Don Draper where I started turning inward and you know started embracing that which I knew that was not through education. And I don't mean to talk about like, you know, and Judaism has plenty of it. The Krishnamurti has plenty of it. I'm kind of, I guess, a nihilist in the real sense, not like in the negative sense. 
like um, I'm certainly, I believe in God. I, I've said that many times in public before. I don't think it's that controversial, but um, I believe in a higher power. So creatively, I'm at a place where I'm like, what kind of sustenance are we seeking as we realize that this is our, our actual life going on here? Do you, do you have a practice at all? Jewish or yeah, Eastern I do, or... I do, I do TM. Oh. It was good for me. Trans- I transcendental meditation. Yeah. Yes, and I had uh, I had tinnit- I have tinnitus. So traditional um, meditation is hard for me because I can't deal with the silence because everything comes up really loud for me. I get this buzzing in my ears. So with TM, there is a um, you have a mantra, and saying the word actually drowns out the uh, <laughs> the. Um, I did that. I started riding a horse, believe it or not, which I think is kind of the greatest meditation there is. And, um, I mean, I didn't really, I've always been present in my work, but I definitely was not in my life necessarily. And this is, I wouldn't say it's made me less afraid. I mean, I'm terrified right now. Everybody is, but, um, I have, how do I say this? The whole culture feels like it's in the process of some kind of divorce and, um, alienation and isolation and it requires a new level of compassion and there's also this weird thing and i don't know if it's esoteric philosophy or what i would use for it but it's definitely a cult in some way where i've started to realize that there are a lot of things that i already know not like insanely know that we all already know and i've tried to they're in the work already i can find confirmation of them constantly and it's not about coincidence or any woo-woo stuff. It's just a matter of, like, I find that an acceptance... I would say, Lael, if I have a philosophy right now, and boy, is it hard to maintain, it's surrender. I have in, in the... In the in, and, and the funny thing is I started studying the Kabbalah also with a, with a comedy writer who I've known for a long time and who has a, a PhD in religion. Comedy writers, you can find some amazing ones. And... We just had this conversation where we're like, so, so alchemy, the belief that you can turn lead into gold is based on the principle. They weren't trying to turn lead into gold. They knew it was too expensive. They were trying to prove that everything was made of the same stuff. Well, guess what? It is things like that. You know, hearing you talk, I, I'm just, I'm smiling this huge smile because I keep seeing this amazing image of Don, and I've, I've told you this before, I really think that last scene, it's probably the greatest series finale scene maybe in oh. TV history. It is so perfect in so many ways. And here we are again, right? We're yeah. at this moment of surrender, of self-search, of yeah. opening up, of everything falling apart, of focusing our energies inward. It's it's the moment that keeps resonating. I love that. Well, the funny, we, we kept writing about, we kept writing about entropy. I had that book. There was a book, someone basically mm-hmm. took this like Marxism to the 60s, in the 60s, and said, this is what's going on. Everything will break apart into a million pieces. Entropy is not even a philosophy. It is a physiologic and psychological fact about everything we know. And uh, I hate to say it, it it's, it's, it's happening. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what's, and it always happens. What's the next project? brother. Wait, Mark, before you go there, can I just jump in and ask a question that you can either re-ask or just ignore? Producer Josh. You were just talking about the last scene and the very last shot, and I'm watching the smile that comes on Don's face, and the only thought that comes in my head is, what's at the end of Clockwork Orange? 
You have Malcolm. Uh, Mal why can't I think of his name? Malcolm you have McDowell. Alex. Yeah, Malcolm Dell saying, I was cured all right. And it's the exact same face. And Don has come <laughs> to this realization. And I'm like, the it's the same. Is, I did am not I crazy? notice that. I, think, I, I don't think I'm not going to say you're crazy. Um, I learned a long time ago that I have no control over and should not have control over what people think when they're, when they're watching the show. In fact, it was even a surprise to me, even as a TV viewer my whole life, that it was so important to people to have such a sense of superiority over characters when they watch the show. That they actually enjoy judging them and <laughs> hate seeing themselves. And it's like you don't I, – I, for me, it's like I saw Tony and Soprano, and I remember when he turned to Carmela when they saw Me um, uh, Meadow was uh, applying to uh, Berkeley. And they're like, when is she going to find out that we have no power? And you're like, Tony Soprano has no power over his daughter? That's where I go. But there's always, you know, like, you know – judgment and things like that and stuff that you bring to it i mean clockwork orange is is a sarcastic irony to me you know i can only tell you what i meant and i've discussed it before but um and i think john ham nailed it you know we never talked about it either it should be express itself visually i hope but he is coming home to himself and who he is and that happens to be an ad man and we love advertising and we love that ad. And if you watch, I don't know if you noticed this, Stephanie, but he is constantly brushing away the use of love as a technique to sell advertising. And that was deliberate because he is waiting for the moment when he can use it in an honest way. He doesn't want to just cheapen it. And when I heard people say it was corny or, you know, and they don't, they're not aware of the significance of that ad, I mean... Yes, that ad was used to sell sugar water. But two years before that ad came on the air, you couldn't even show black people and white people together in the same ad. And the fact that advertising is frequently a co-option of the culture and a also a reflection. It's not a leader necessarily. You don't, you don't lead people into buying things. You tell them, you kind of guess what they want and, and hold it up for them. I felt that Don had gone through this moment where he didn't want to exist. He had embraced some part of himself with Leonard. And he, there's, it's the last thing I wrote in the series, actually. I have it on a piece of paper somewhere. It might be at the Ransom Center at University of Texas, but I wrote it on some little piece of card, uh, some little card that said, it's a new, a new day, new ideas. I added this in there. You know, when, when they're doing the sun salutation at the beginning of it. And to me, Don having an idea. And honestly, it came to me because I was, I heard the ohm. I don't remember where. And it literally clicked in my brain in some recess, hearing the first note of that ad. And it was about three or four years before that. And I, and I remember asking the composer, are these harmonically related to each other? I think it's like a G and an A. Is there some kind of spiritual reality to what, why that song, does that song work because it's in that, you know, in that melodic area? So I didn't see anything dark in it unless you think that, that Don becoming himself is dark. But I do see something dark at the end of Clockwork Orange where they're like, you know, they, ha they, have, they have to politically turn him back into the man he was because, it, because the, the project failed. So I want to get down to the bottom um of why I really wanted you here. And that is 
to discuss the Moshe Dayan poster on Stan Rizzo's wall. <laughs> we secured this interview. We I let everyone have, you know, your oh beautiful meditations on life. <laughs> Why does Stan Rizzo have a Moshe Dayan poster? And how do I get you know that Moshe so f- Dayan poster? You know what's so funny? This is what I was saying about the Jewish part of it. Like, I've always wanted to talk about the Jewish part of it. And I I think the Jews are very well represented. And like I said before, George Costanza was supposedly Italian. It was not a comfortable place in mainstream media that the statement that they used to say about uh, for the comedy writers was um, think Yiddish, write British. You know, Molly Goldberg was an openly Jewish character, but there is some belief that that's because not only was she a radio star, but that Jews owned the furniture stores. And so there were uh, more TV sets in Jewish homes than anywhere else. And then there's, you know, Paley. There's a lot of Jews in entertainment. We all know this in the media, et cetera. We're overrepresented in so many ways. But we basically present ourselves as insiders, not outsiders. Um, I mean, you know, other than Charles Dickens, the, the meaning of Christmas was most popularly promoted in television from Jewish writers who were creating you know, this sense of like, it, there sure. must be something beyond retail. <laughs> so um, for me, that is a very personal thing. I tried to do it in the first season. Hopefully it came across, but explain America's, America identified with Israel the way Israel identified with America. And that has to do with being an underdog, being outnumbered, um, having some kind of um, exceptional virtue, believe it or not, and therefore earning the right to be violent in defense. All of these things sort of, you know, they asked Lyndon Johnson why he, why he, I believe, I don't know if this is a real quote, but I read this somewhere that why he supported Israel. And he said, because it was right, you know? So the idea that Exodus would be, that Jews were in the mainstream in a more, uh, that people were out about it, you know? Otherwise, before that, you had to be my father, like keeping track of the fact that Leslie Howard or John Garfield were Jewish, you know? So anyway, that said, in the entertainment part of it, I grew up with that Moshe Diane poster on my wall. My parents bought a bunch of posters when we went to MoMA. And that was one of the things in the MoMA store. There was one of Ernest Hemingway. And it's a, I thought it was a very famous photo. As a little kid, having that on your wall was terrifying. Because I wondered what the hell was behind that eye patch. Like, yeah, who's this decay- pirate? What de- it's de- I didn't think pirate. I thought this, oh my God, there's like a gaping wound. But um, I found out very soon that he was an, uh, an enormous sex symbol. And a sign of, um, you know, and not in the cowardly, whatever, deracinated um, Jewish male stereotype that I had grown up with to some degree of like, you know, the CPA or whatever, or like... You know, you know, Feevish Beeman, who's like the quiet guy, you know, whatever, take whatever stereotype you want to the guy, you know, the guy in the Twilight Zone who owns the, you know, the, the candy store. I, here's this, this, you know, soldier sex symbol. So anyway, I found out that that poster was a big seller. I think Stan, I think Stan is just uh, has it there because it's sexy. (laughs) that is amazing it's nice you know because the finale aired five years ago so it's nice to get like to break some some news for for madman fanatics it's so incredible for me to talk about it and not worry about spoiling it by the way but you did ask earlier in this interview you're like have you been there yet have you gotten to that part of it (laughs) i just (laughs) i just honestly i spent years promoting the show and lying 
because I didn't want to ruin it. I was like, there's so few things in life that you that are entertainment wise that. And by the way, this is a style also, whether it goes in and out of style, where you don't know what's going to happen. And when I talked earlier, Mark, about this harmonizing with, yes. with people's preconceptions about TV, that is the Mad Men universe. It's like, this is the way a TV show works. And David Chase was very aware of this because he'd been writing half of that TV. This is the way the TV show works. And then there's a bunch of TV writers who are very entertaining and good writers who like to turn that on its head. So now you're just in a whatever world of opposites. It's not really anything new. And then you can actually stun the audience with the biggest twist ending by having by imitating real life because people are not used to seeing it on TV. Right. And I'm not talking about doing a court case where, where Perry Mason loses. I'm talking about something, the example I always use is, I mean, a guy goes, a guy meets a woman at a party, he gets her phone number, he writes it on a piece of paper and he loses it. And he spends the entire episode trying to find her. And then on a TV show, at the end of it, he will run into her or her friend will run into him or they'll just turn each other's backs and they'll see each other on subway cars passing and it'll, there they'll be. And, and in Mad Men, he will just never see her again, which is happens. <laughs> so people will be like, oh my God, what a twist at the end. And I'm like, but that's the way your life is, right? <laughs> just, you know. So there's a lot of stuff like that in the show. What I a mean, twist. Life is cruel and short. Like, yep. <laughs> yeah, um, nasty, British, and short. Mr. Mr. Um, what you call it, Harry Hamlin's character spends an entire season trying to destroy Don and trying to squeeze him out of the agency. And at the end, when they've done their big coup and Roger has sold them to McCann, they have a vote, and then you see him put his hand up. And everyone's like, I remember pitching this in the room, and they're like, what is that about? I'm like, what is that about? It's a lot of money. That's what the guy was after the whole time. Of course he's going to vote for it. So there's this, it's a, it's a big joke and a big twist that the enemy just joins their side. But of course he would, you know? And sometimes I had to be reminded, you know, I have people who are really in advertising in the room, Josh Weltman and Bob Levinson. And I remember the moment where where Joan is going up against um, the guy at McCann and he's, you know, Roger says, you know, he's offered her 50 cents on the dollar and, and uh, she goes, it's not about the money. And Roger says, it's only about the money. So things like that, they all harken back to what I was saying about Tony Soprano, not being as smart as an FBI agent, like they are on TV. It becomes a twist because it's rooted in reality. Well, speaking of money, um, yeah. Thank you for being on our Jewish podcast. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. Sorry, I don't know. This is such a treat to talk to you. I mean, it's like I think it's every viewer's dream to get to talk to the creator. Right did I after. talk more? Did I talk to more than anybody who's ever been on this? I you didn't, really... but you, you did not. We noticed you did not tell a single Holocaust joke, which we're a little bit disappointed. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, you know, my favorite all... joke. My favorite joke in Mad Men of all the jokes, and you know. Like I said, once we did it, um, Aaron Levy, he was Jewish and on the show, her uncle did that Manischewitz campaign that had the, the boxes under the, that looked like they were under the seats. But um, when they go to get um, Roger to get his, his Semitic wife to um, get, help them close the deal, uh, to go meet the people from Manischewitz, uh, uh, Roger says, how Jewish are they? Fiddler on the roof, audience or cast? <laughs> well we here Roger's got Roger's got a New York slash Jewish sense of humor for sure. Matthew, we like to think we're cast. 
So oh, nice, nice. <laughs> the the Yiddish tradition, version. right? <laughs> you know, I haven't seen that, and now I, when it's, are we going to be in the theater it's again? Marvelous! I think it's totally marvelous. Um, oh. We have had several of our Gentiles of the week who have come back as repeat. You know, two Peter, three Peters. Uh, Alec Baldwin has been Gentile of the week nineteen times, but. Um, We'd like to have you back another time as a Jew of the week. For I would for love that. I would love that. I do have a I do have a project in the works. I know you asked me about it. I'm not ready to talk about it, but let me come back when I have something to sell. If we can keep that Jewish, that that would Lovely. that's what we're here for, baby. Let me come and peddle my wares. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Your push cart is welcome in our street anytime. <laughs> and our listeners can continue to binge watch Mad Men and start the Romanoffs and just start this conversation and. It's just a real treat to, to chat with you, Matthew. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. For me, too. I've been listening for a long time. I, you get to you get to hear me say that. It's really true. I do listen to it. I'm a lurker. But, you know, I also, like, I feel liberated by the fact that we have become a persecuted minority again. So I don't have to pretend that we're <laughs> just, like, above that in multiculturalism, we don't count. Well, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, Matthew <laughs> Weiner, thank you so much. Uh, Bye-bye, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mazel tov. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I just like have some shout outs to people that I've like discovered and realized that they listen to the podcast. I want to shout out Carolyn Moskowitz in Brooklyn, who is a friend, officially a friend of the pod. Um, also to Scott Newman, who knows my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law and listens to the show. And we want to say hello to him as well. Hello to Scott and Carolyn. Leo, do you have a mazel tov? Yeah. So, you know, it seems like only yesterday... But in reality, it was probably 700 years ago when we could still leave our houses. When we were sitting in a beautiful restaurant enjoying a Shabbat, an Orthodox Shabbat dinner with Madison Clara. And she just got married. So mazel tov to Madison and John and to Sister Stephanie for moderating the wedding that I hope was broadcast live on Zoom. And also, speaking of Zoom weddings, to Ayelet and Sammy, whose beautiful Zoom wedding I attended yesterday. And I have a mazel tov this week. I want to wish a happy 53rd birthday to Tamar Klein. Her husband, Jeff, reminded us that it's her birthday. And he also wanted us to know that she is super dedicated to CrossFit and has been doing it via Zoom during the shutdown. Also that she's a scenic designer and a painter for the theater. She's never met a dog she hasn't loved except maybe one chihuahua. And that chihuahua won't be heard from anymore. When she tried to volunteer at their town's animal shelter, she was told that their insurance wouldn't cover volunteers. So she applied for a job and is now a part-time animal control officer. (laughs) (laughs) She'll even go in at night on her own time to spend extra time with needy dogs. And I have to say, because Tamar Klein has been to my house and we have dog wallpaper in our powder room, in our our first floor bathroom. Oh, it's great. And she came out and she walked over to me and Sid and said, I love your bathroom. And it took us a second. We realized, oh. It's not that we have some fancy bidet. It's that she's a dog person and she loved that wallpaper. Uh, Her daughter, Nama, is absolutely the jewel of her eye, the joy of her life. Dogs are a close second. And probably her husband, Jeff, is, uh, you know, reasonably close third. We're just so happy that Tamar Klein is in the J Crew. Happy birthday, Tamar. I want to say Nama, a great name if we're talking Hebrew names. Absolutely. Maybe that's the name that Kerrigan needs, Nama. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send all your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call our listener line 914-570-4869. 
We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. And if you want to get our clothes or our onesies or our beer cozies or our nail clippers or anything branded unorthodox, go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and you can find our swag. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramucci. Our, our artwork is by Esther Hortiger and our theme music is by Golem. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and rabbinic supervision by Ann Mira, who it turns out was a Jew. We got that wrong. He'd become a Jew after marrying Gary Stiller. We hope to someday come to you again from Argo Studios, which is actually where Joe Biden is hanging out. Shalom, friends. Oh my god, the cat's in the closet, you guys. <laughs> That's a Harry uh, Chapin song. Right. Um oh let's see. Let's hope he leaves. I didn't realize there was room for more than one in this closet. Cats in the closet, recording the a podcast. Cats in the closet and the oh 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 my god, he found a really nice little spot. Okay, maybe he'll just stay there. <laughs> <laughs>